Thank you so much, Sankun, for leading us in our service. We welcome you today truly to a historic service. So you must take photos of this because you're the first batch that's come back and we all enjoyed that singing. Is that right? Okay, all right. I think I'm the only excited one. Lots of people are excited. I heard good singing. So thank you, the musicians, for doing that. And we've been praying for this. The newspaper articles and everything out there is one year ago. It's been a year since the circuit breaker. And so we begin a new series of messages. As we begin this new series of messages, listen hard to God's Word, listen humbly to God's Word. Meetings and meaning. We all have meetings every day. We encounter people, we bump into people. And uh, I want to ask you, how many people have you met this past week, on average, on a day, right? in a day? How many people have you met? Who among them has stood up your encounters with them, your meeting of them, your appointments with them? Have they made the difference? And why have they made the difference or not made the difference? If we are honest and thought about it a little bit more, most of our meetings, most of our encounters in life are very casual and very forgettable and very insignificant. But ever so often, we will have a meeting, an encounter. We will bump into somebody that really makes a difference to our lives. Memorable and significant. So, if I ask you to name three top persons you have encountered in your life that has made the difference, would you be able to do it? That's three out of, I do not know, 3,000 people you have met, 30,000 people you have met in your whole lifetime. And this one, I'll never forget. I was preaching overseas in Australia at a youth conference. And you know, youth conferences overseas in a place like Australia, in, in between the camps, right, they will go for outings in the afternoon and the outings can get a little bit challenging for the speaker because suppose the speaker is supposed to play along with them, etc. So you not just speak in the morning, speak in the evening, but you must go out for outings. And this particular outing, we went out with, with the youth we were all going to swim at a waterfall. There was only one problem. You've heard this before. I don't know how to swim. And I knew that going out with Australian youth was slightly dangerous, right? And I told my roommate, who was a missionary, that if they asked me to jump in the water at a waterfall, and you can't, t you can't tell, at least from the sea, right? You walk in from the beach, you can roughly say, oh yeah, it's coming up, coming up, coming up my chest. Then I'll stop here. But in a waterfall, you can't, you can't tell the bottom. So I told him that I can't swim. And they asked me to jump. Can he jump in and save me? <laughs> and so we went for that outing. We tracked up that, that hill. And sure, there was. There was a waterfall. And sure enough, it was a big waterfall. And sure enough, everybody was daring everybody to jump. And sure enough, the speaker had to jump. And sure enough... I jumped, and sure enough, it was very deep. And my flatmate jumped in, my roommate jumped in, and I'll never forget him. He was a missionary. His name is Ken Frewer. I've met thousands of people like you, but that name will stick with me forever. Why? Who do we remember? Why do we remember? We'll never forget people who save us, who have come to our rescue. In a time of great need. So are your meetings meaningless? 
Are your meetings casual? Are your meetings inconsequential? Or are your meetings truly an orchestration of God's hand delivering you and saving you for himself? Once you can understand that, everything that happens in Scripture is about a God who is working furiously, working non-stop 24-7 to deliver you and me from our greatest dangers in life. And so the sermon is entitled, Against All Odds. Why against all odds? For when you read this portion, that's one way to understand it, so the first slide comes on. We're going to meet Pharaoh in chapter 1. And as you meet Pharaoh, the odds of oppression when you sit under a man-made kingdom and man-made wisdom, you're going you're gonna to experience oppression in your life. And that's a common thing you're going to find again and again. And then by chapter 2, you meet not a man-made ruler, you meet a God-deliverer. And in meeting a God-deliverer, the chances of him delivering you is very high, not because of anything he can do, but because of God working in him and through him. And finally, it's all about meeting our God and Him working against all odds for us. And so we pick up the narrative from this point. These are the names of the sons of Israel. So Israel, Jacob, interchangeable. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel by God in the book of Genesis. Who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And so, Israel in Egypt, what's the meaning of this? Now, you try to find the equivalent today. If you find one nation entering another nation, Myanmar is in crisis. United Nations issues warnings, issues different directives, our country. But which country has gone? Who, so which country has gone to Myanmar? This is Israel arriving in Egypt. Albeit, she's only 70, but there's significance here. What is the meaning of this meeting between this infant Israel of 70 people in the populous nation of Egypt. The storyline is very important. Verse 1 to 4 is actually the storyline of the nation of Israel. From this point onwards, it's all been national Israel. The 12 tribes, how they came about through the four wives of Jacob. You remember the story? He loved Rachel, but no children from Rachel, no children from Rachel. And so Leah came along. And she bore him children and bore him children, but he never loved her. And so four wives and 12 tribes later. And then verse 5, you get 70 descendants and Joseph was there. So in summary, as we trace it from Genesis, the first book, the story of God saving the world through the four patriarchs, beginning with Abraham, ending with Joseph. Joseph is betrayed cruelly by his brothers who are envious of him, insecure because of him. But as he is literally sold into slavery to Egypt, he rises to power to become God's right-hand man. And then it's not about his rise to power, it's about a fall to famine. 
We got hit exactly one year ago, or thereabouts. And have you forgotten? Every time our Prime Minister or our leader anywhere made an announcement about anything, about the, devolving, about the evolving crisis and the danger, our supermarkets will be emptied out. I just met some people for dinner and said, did you go? Did you go? Right? Noodles, toilet rolls, famine struck. Much more serious than that, friends. Agricultural society, no supermarkets, no Sengsheng. And only Egypt had food because of the wisdom God gave to Joseph. And then the punchline is, the spiritual gospel truth is, God preserved Jacob's descendants. The 12 tribes of Israel, infancy, almost died at infancy. God preserved them against all odds. That's the first four verses. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. If you are familiar with the Bible, with God's Word, this should be familiar language. Why is this familiar language? Because fruitful, increasing number multiplied is actually from God's original creational mandate. When he made men and women his image, you see, he said to them, go forth and multiply and fill the earth and rule the earth on my behalf. And then when you see grew exceedingly strong so that the land of Egypt was filled with them, this is actually a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And if you know anything about Abraham, Abraham was promised countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. So when was the last time you went and walked on the beach and counted the sand on the seashore? It's uncountable. When was the last time we looked at the skies and counted the stars in the sky? They're uncountable. But when God made the promise to Abraham, Abraham, he was an old man and his wife's womb was barren, was dead. And what's this? Against all odds, the first of the three promises to Abraham and Sarai have come true. That you will have many descendants that you will go to a land and you will be blessed. And all who bless you will be blessed and all who curse you will be cursed. Against all odds, God's not just creational purpose is kept, but God's promise to an old couple is kept again and again. And did you notice all three matriarchs, they are all barren. And God has to open their wombs for this to happen. Now with that backdrop, we understand why Israel is in Egypt. Now we meet Pharaoh. There arose a new king over Egypt. New is very important. Because the old king obviously treated Joseph and his descendants really well. Who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He goes on. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, store cities, Pitim and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So now we meet Pharaoh, a new king, a new Pharaoh. And one of the things we need to understand, the meaning of this new Pharaoh, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them as slaves. We meet Pharaoh, and we meet what we call an ahistorical king. So how many of you love history? I'm just doing a check. You may want to put up your hands also as you watch this online. How many of you love history? You are a very rare species if you love history in our modern day world. Very few people love history. And that's the truth. And that's why we are so weak, because we learn lessons from history. He's ahistorical. Did they not teach him this? Or was he deliberately amnesia, forgetful? Because kings and queens are taught history for their learning. So he was forgetful and he was ungrateful for the previous lifeline that was sent to him. The previous lifeline that saved his ancestors and his nation was was Joseph. And Joseph is descendants, previously a lifeline, previously a help, previously saviors, now a danger, a threat, a risk. And that's the forgetfulness and the fickleness and the ungratefulness in our fallen natures. And some of you may have experienced that in your life. Once you were considered a saviour to somebody, now you're considered a threat to somebody. And then he's flawed in his thinking. A king who is flawed in his thinking is not very safe introduction. How is he flawed in his thinking? Very simplistic. Too many of them, too few of us. If ever trouble breaks out, war breaks out, they will come against us. So it's a way of saying in Scripture, when we live outside God's presence, and outside God's presence, we will build the Tower of Babels, and we will build our human empires. In human empires, when we live outside God's presence, we're going to eat thorns and thistles. With thorns and thistles, life will be difficult. And one sure thing, when we rule ourselves without God, you're going to face oppression. And you can face oppression all the way top down. And friends, isn't that true? And so we meet Pharaoh, and we get the first dangerous insight of a dangerous man because he now considers the nation, the fleshling nation of Israel, a threat to him. Then the account goes on to Pharaoh and the midwives. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman, see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so first introduction and encounter of Pharaoh, forgetful, ungrateful, fraught in thinking, insecure, and now going to oppress fellow human beings. And here is how he does it. 
So what can we learn? Did you notice as the Bible is written under God? Pharaoh is unnamed, but the midwives are named. Have you ever gone to a human situation like this where the VIP has no name? The VIP surely got name. You are the non-VIP, you are nameless. But in scripture, it is the nameless and the faceless who are significant to God and his purposes. Again and again, that is the story. But those who are self-made and the kings and rulers of this world, those who strut around the corridors of power, they are the ones who are unnamed in the sight of God. So the midwives, they fear God, they do not fear Pharaoh. And a very important thing is, there is now a national crisis. There's a law being passed by Pharaoh himself, a decree being passed by Pharaoh himself against us as God's people. How is God going to overturn this national decree? Did you notice that God always overturns a global situation, a national situation or a global situation by working through families? On, in the domestic scene, between a husband and a wife and the bearing of children, that is always from the cradle of birth comes the solution. So take note of that, friends. I do not know whether you have noticed this is how God works to save the world by saving individuals and turning their hearts. And now we meet Moses in his birth. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dubbed bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And so we have met Pharaoh, and now we are going to meet Moses. We can only but summarize. It's a very domestic scene. A Levite, Mary's a Levite woman, they bear a child. This is all under the increasing oppression of Pharaoh against them. And the mother notices this is a fine child. Could it be the Hebrew way of saying, this child looks like there's a chance of survival? I do not know, we as modern day people, what's the infant mortality rate here in Singapore? The infant mortality rate in our country is very, very low. The infant mortality rate Previously, in all civilizations, it was very, very high. And now with a national decree to get rid of all Israelite male bonds, it's even worse. But this Levite mother sees that the child is a fine child. Good looking, good health, strong, good sense of survival. And she has a headache, heartache, but she also has hope. And so she puts the child in a flimsy, risky basket, floats down this river, and then the sister follows along. I will call that a loving sister, because sometimes you ask your children, can you go and watch Titi? Can you go and watch Mimi? Cannot. This is, she goes, and then what do you get? 
she suggests to the woman who picks up this basket, who happened to be Pharaoh's daughter, that she has somebody to look after. This is the first maternity package where a mother is paid to look after her own child. Did you notice that? The irony of ironies, that instead of being insecure and at risk, and Moses above against all odds, floats down this river, and of all the thousands of people who bathe in this river, or tens of thousands of people who bathe in this river, have you ever seen a river which is the river of life? I went to India. And there by the Ganges River, thousands of people, you can watch the documentaries, they go in, everything happens in that river. Of all the thousands of people who enter, who should so happen in Hokkien here, Chun Chun, right? That means as precisely at the right time, the right person, the right time comes along. And she picks it up. And Moses' sister says, right, that the mother will look after her. And it's all, the punchline is, verse 10, he became her son, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. There is always irony when we read the Bible. There is always irony when we hear the gospel. The river of death becomes the river of life. That Pharaoh who decrees this says you throw the male-born into the, into the river. That's the end of them. But how would he know that his own daughter will rescue a Hebrew child? Against all odds. And then now we meet Moses in his adult life. See how the account is shortened? Straight into his adult life. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that way and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So this is our first introduction to Moses, the adult Moses. What's the impression you get of the adult Moses? Whatever you do not know, he seems to have a heart of justice. And then it goes on. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And the man said to Moses, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Have you ever tried to intervene and help someone? And then you yourself are put at risk. This is Moses. So our first encounter and introduction to Moses, what do you find? He had a miraculous birth. Against all odds, he's preserved by his mother. From her initial observation that he's a fine child with hope of survival, to his sister running after that basket, to, to Pharaoh's daughter discovering it. But then, as you meet him in his adult life, he has a reckless start. And because of this reckless start, he has a very uncertain future. Was it an introduction to Moses? Self-sufficient Moses. Nothing wrong in that he had a sense 
of justice. A sense that oppressing a fellow human being is wrong. Did he have an instinctive, did he have an instinctive inclination towards his own people? That he saw the Egyptians strike his own? We really do not know from the narrative at this point. But it seems to indicate self-sufficiency and self-rescue. And because of that, it all comes to a self-ending. And so he has to flee to Midian. But there's something prophetic in what the Hebrew says to him. The fellow Hebrew says to him, Are you a prince? Who made you prince and judge over us? Because from this point onwards, you're going to know more and more of God's plans for Moses, and he will indeed, ironically, be God's prince and judge. But it must be in God's time. So he flees to Median. And as he flees to Median, guess what? From Genesis, you know that many things happen at the well. A lot of love affairs begin at the well. And here's a repetition of that story again. That's why in every church building, we must have a lot of water coolers everywhere. For people to meet. We don't have modern day wells, but we must have spots in which people just meet. Right? And as he arrives there, who does he find? Let me read that for you. Verse 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And so he becomes the hero. And it's the first sign of hope for a fugitive who killed somebody to protect his fellow countrymen. But did you notice as he's introduced to that household, he is known as an Egyptian. He's known as a foreigner, but there's enough goodwill and trust so that one of the daughters, Sephora, is offered to him. Against all odds, he's protected in his life, running from danger. And finally, you have to meet our God. During those many days, the king of Egypt died the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. We would totally miss the story if we think this is just meeting Pharaoh, meeting Moses. Because ultimately, all of God's word is about meeting God himself. So what do we know about this true and this living God? God heard their groaning. You have a God who is not just alive, but God who is in love with his people. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So you see all everything about God? Everything about God is a verb. God hears, God remembers, God saw, and God knew. And it is all about God seeing the predicament of our situation, of our human sin, our human oppression against one another. 
And that's the story of the gospel. We have a God, but you ask yourself, what kind of God? A God who knows, a God who remembers, a God who sees, and a God who cares. And so some gospel truths for us, against all God, all odds. God will fulfill His promise to be our God. That's what it's all about. He created us to be our God and for us to be His people. But we chose not to listen to Him. We were thrown out of His presence and God has began His redemption purposes. But God's promise, simple but profound promise, to simply be our God and for us to be His people, to worship Him and to love Him and to trust Him, has two great human obstacles. And the two human obstacles is you might meet a pharaoh. You might live under a king. You might live under a government that comes against you and your faith in God. And all throughout history, from the Old to the New Testament, human kings and rulers and governments have come against God and His people, striking fear in us to give up. We call that persecution. And just in case you don't realize, half of Christendom still lives under persecution. Just because we don't, here in Singapore, doesn't mean the rest do not. But we suffer, we suffer seduction, which is even more perilous. And so the next obstacle to God being God and God fulfilling His promises is Israel's unbelief and Israel's disobedience. And you saw that again and again and again, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way to Joseph's life. Every time Abraham right, tried to help God along in his salvation plan, they messed it up. They messed it up again and again. So, there are two threats to us experiencing God's ultimate blessing of redeeming us and saving us, of Him being our God and us being His people. I ask you, which one do you face? Do you face an external threat of human oppression? Is somebody stopping you from believing in God? Or is yours an internal one in which you are struggling from lack of faith, lack of trust, lack of obedience to God? And so friends, did you notice that in all of these things, it is God's purpose in God's timing. Everything is happening so neatly according to His timetable of redemption. At the right time, at the right time, God's purpose for Joseph to be sold into slavery. At the right time, he rose to prominence. At the right time, they stocked up. At the right time, the famine came. At the right time, Jacob and his descendants found refuge. Joseph's brothers found refuge with him. At the right time, they all passed away. And then at the right time, Pharaoh rises. Oh, right time? Wrong ruler. Everything's happening 
according to God's timetable. And this sets it up. You are either going to live by trusting in human rulers, or you're going to live by trusting in God and His deliverer, God and His salvation. So I want to ask in ending a few obedience questions and response questions. Do you trust in God? We have a tagline here for ERPC at Tengah, our building project. God's work, done in God's way, in God's time, for God's glory, will never lack His supply. Where do you think we got this 5Gs from? From Genesis. Everything must be done God's way, for God's glory, in God's time, and will always never lack God's supply. And so, we had three days of an outing with our guest workers. I just want to say on behalf of us that all who step up to do this work, our guest workers, adopt a dom. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. So I've written a pastoral letter, and a pastoral letter is an important one for you to be reading. Download the e-bulletin in which we give thanks to God. I wanted to go for this outing, but I had my second jab. And varying reports, when you get the second jab, your vaccination, some people feel nothing. I felt nothing with the first jab. Some people feel something with the second jab. And I felt nothing for a few hours, but by nightfall, the fever came, and then body aches. Then I realized I'm a weak man. <laughs> my wife has a second jab, and nothing happened to her, as always. And so I couldn't go for the first outing on Monday. I couldn't go for the second outing on Tuesday. And I wanted to go on Wednesday, but I was not fully recovered. And I was just toying up and praying to God, should I go, should I go, should I not go, should I go? I finally went. And who should I meet in that outing guest workers to Sentosa? The very first one I met in the outing to Hot Park. Of all days, he's there. And so we struck up our relationship and our conversations again. Of course, he calls me uncle. <laughs> uncle, so good to see you again. <laughs> and we talked and talked. And then through all that conversation, through the trust that was built up, he's willing to share with me his plans for the future. And I said to him, I will pray for you. I ask of you, what are the chances of me meeting the guest workers. You know, for them to come out of their dorms, they have to go for their swap test. And they don't know which day they're supposed to go for their swap test. And I get my second job, and I have no idea which one I can go for to meet them. It's all God's timeliness of things. That's how He plans and orchestrates things to bring the gospel message. Of course, the fulfillment of all this is Jesus coming as the final Moses offering us the final exodus. And so God with his people, the word is tabernacle with them. All throughout exodus, God tabernacle with his people. Jesus finally comes to tabernacle with us by his death and resurrection. Jesus himself in his infancy is at risk like Moses. And he's preserved where? He's preserved in the most unthinkable place. He's preserved like Moses in Egypt. And then towards the end of his life, he serves the Last Supper. The Last Supper is, remember, the Passover. The Passover is the Exodus. 
Everything about Jesus' life echoes and fulfills that it's not Moses the final deliverer. He is Jesus. Delivering us from Satan and sin and death that you and me have no answer. Pharaoh is a nothing and the oppression that he brings is nothing compared to you and me being oppressed by Satan and oppressed by sin and finally die and be separated from God. This is why Jesus has come. And so what does that mean for you and me? Please do not forget that God works on the domestic to reverse global sin. He has done that through all patriarchal history in Genesis. He's going to do that again in, in Exodus. He's just done it with the birth of Moses. Then when you go back after this service and read our handbook, everything in there comes from Scripture. And what is it that's in there? Our theme for the year is back to basics, back to Jesus. And we want to go to back to basics, back to Jesus personally. And back to basics, back to Jesus collectively. But it is God changing an individual's heart before he rescues a whole nation. God had to work so hard on Abraham's heart, on Sarah's heart, before he brings about that child. It will be you who bears this child. Their heart just will not believe it. Same here. God will work on the hearts of the midwives who feared God. And these midwives turned the tide. God will work on the heart of Moses. And he's now in Midian, being taught by God, not in the palace of Pharaoh where he gets the best education. He's taught by God under the stars. He's taught by God in the elements. And so God works on the domestic to reverse global sin. And so back to basics, back to Jesus. We want to work on our families. Because marriages and families are under attack. And now with alternative sexualities coming furiously from the west to the east, there's so much confusion and conflict in our hearts. It has arrived with us having to think about transgenderism in our schools at MOE. And unless we build strong biblical Christian families, we will have little chance of surviving our friends. It's very important that we listen from the Old to the New Testament. This is what it means for us to be God's people. And so we're going to start dead moms and families for Christ and help our parents not simply with marriage prep, marriage enrichment, but marriage discipleship, parenting discipleship, making sure that you don't leave the parenting of your children to Mr. Google. You know that parenting today is very competitive. By the time your children hit teenage years, they get more information and they are parented more by, by peers out there and by Mr. Google out there. The surveys have been done. That the older generation, we believe in one man, one woman. That this is God's blueprint. The younger generation under 40 and the 50% mark, they don't believe this. That why should it be one man, one woman? And providing LRT, not our light rail tra transit, but providing leaders and resources and training and testimonies to help us along. So read that with some care. And we're going to roll this out. And this rolling out of gospel ministries 
to keep growing in these areas is more important than the rollout of the vaccines. For when we roll out the Bible and roll out the gospel and roll out Jesus into people's personal hearts, back to basics, back to Jesus personally, back to basics, back to Jesus in my marriage, in my family, that's when God starts to change things around us. And do not forget, friends, the world that we live in, oppression, so we tune into a seminar, a helpful one. We are asked to tune in on sexuality. And this leader in America was telling us, in all his years of dealing with people with sexuality problems, a very significant percentage would have suffered some trauma, some emotional trauma in their lives. All the way from an absent father, an absent mother, to an abusive father, abusive mother. Or friends. So from absentism to abuse, there's PTSD emotionally. There's PTSD relationally. And all those things cause us to find alternatives, alternative loves, alternative securities elsewhere, friends. As Jesus' people who have God's Word and the Holy Spirit, we want to go back to basics personally, back to basics in our families, and practicing godly PTSD, not post-traumatic stress disorder, but God tells us that we can be praying for each other. Do you take prayer seriously? That we can be thinking about each other, godly thoughts for each other, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, you think about such things. Philippians 4, verse 8 to 9. Then speak only what is of encouragement to each other. And that's in Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 28 to 30. And then doing good deeds, you spur each other on to loving good deeds. Can we not pray that living under Jesus as our Lord, as our final deliverer, that we would practice this spirit-filled PTSD in our lives? And this could be the way we live, more intentionally. On Monday, why do you think of PTSD, godly PTSD, for a family member? Or do you take your father for granted, your mother for granted? Until they fall sick, then you realise, wow, my dad is, did quite a lot for the family. Without my mother, there's no food. Do you ever think of PTSD for a DG member, discipleship group member? Or your leader, who comes every week to prepare and to teach you as best as they can. On Wednesday, you could do just focus your mind, praying, right? thinking, speaking, and doing a good deed towards an ARPC member beyond your DG group, somebody beyond your DG group, so it doesn't become a ghetto. Why not on Thursday pray for our ministry, the Boys' Brigade, the Children's Church, our prisons ministry? Pray for someone to evangelize on Friday. Then on Sunday, Pray for someone, when you come to services, we can't do it now, but soon as things open up, come here, come to minister to each other, come to serve one another in love. Somebody could be asking for help. And don't forget to do PTSD for your pastors and your elders and your deacons and your leaders. Because if Satan is Satan, he will knock down your leaders first. And in the pastoral letter, I say something about RZIM that we have received an official apology from them. Read those things. Pray about these things. Back to basics, back to Jesus. Collective, personally, 
in your life? Yes. Collectively as families, collectively as a church, when we turn the individual, we turn the society. That's how it is. And so we were invited to a dinner on Thursday. We went. We knew what it was for. And she told us this story that in 1994, she discovered the infidelity of her husband, continued infidelity of her husband, and she was in tears and her life was in bits and pieces. She walked into a church, she walked into Glory Presbyterian Church, and she so happened to hear the speaker speak about forgiveness. And she knew the message was for her. And the speaker at Glory Presbyterian Church so happened to be me. That's not my church. It wasn't. I was the guest speaker. Throughout the whole service, she just cried and cried and cried. The person next to her didn't know what to do except give her tissue after tissue after tissue. After the service, I saw her, I talked to her, and I prayed with her. I didn't remember her. Because by God's grace, we go to so many different places and minister to so many different people. She bumped into one of our church members not too long ago and asked him, which church do you go to? ARPC. Oh, Pastor Chris, can you make an appointment so that I can have dinner with him and thank him? That was 1994. We met on Thursday. 27 years later, she comes to tell me that God sent me to preach that message to her. And if not for that message, her life would have fallen to bits. Who could have arranged that? That was an encounter she never forget. I'm sorry I've forgotten because that's my work in different places. I thank God for the encouragement. And she actually set this up through an ARPC member who sent me a message late one night, very close to midnight. And when he sent that message, I was at one of my lowest points last year. And I said to God, please show me whether I should carry on. This was the story. So I had a very good dinner on Thursday. Do you believe? Some meetings are inconsequential. Some meetings are life-changing. This is how God works. And He's been orchestrating everything in your life to say to you, I love you, I just want to be your God. Can you not just go out and mess it out yourself? And just listen to me and listen to my son offer you love and a new beginning. That's all he wants. And if you hear that message, because you've lived in proud rebellion and forgetfulness against him, today is a pretty good day to give your life to him. Today is a very good day to stop the PTSD, either being a victim of it or being a, a perpetrator of it. Today is a good day to return to the Lord once and for all. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer.
We sing a song. All that you say to us in your word is true, setting us free from the lies of our own heart, the lies of the world, and the lies of the evil one. For our hearts are deceptive above all else. We thank you that the gospel is a message of against all odds. Against all odds, you have come to offer us deliverance. You have come to offer us redemption but we, that we don't deserve but so desperately need for our lives. And we thank you for that story. We thank you for the life of Moses. We thank you for all the lessons that we learn. Above all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that in hearing this, we would allow your spirit to bring about change in our hearts by believing in Jesus as our final saviour and deliverer. And we'll pray to do this in humility and unity. That we'll take returning to Jesus personally in our lives seriously. That we'll take returning to Jesus collectively, together seriously. In our marriages, in our families and as churches. For we know the battle is really fierce. And we pray that we will triumph because we believe in Jesus, our great deliverer. In his mighty name we pray to always sing songs of salvation. Amen.